I want to give a, a pretty brief overview of these, these three promises. I want to give a, a quick overview of the Abrahamic covenant. But I'm not going to spend all of our time there. If you were here on Sunday, you heard uh, a, a sermon that was almost over an, maybe over an hour long, depending on what service you went to. And uh, Phil walked through the Abrahamic covenant, and he did so very well. So I'm going to depend on what he did, and I'm also going to depend on the workbook, because there's a lot in the workbook. So if you're in a small group, you're going over the Abrahamic covenant. So I just want to give a quick overview of this covenant, and then what we're going to actually do is we're going to do something a little bit different tonight. We're going to actually look at two separate controversies that arise out of the Abrahamic covenant, two debates that a lot of Christians have over how we understand scripture actually come out of the Abrahamic covenant. Typically, I do not like to just do a whole lesson on controversies and debates. If you've been here over the last year and a half that I've been here, you've probably realized that. I don't just sit up here and talk about all the debates that we'll find in a specific passage. But these two debates are uh, pretty prevalent, and uh, I needed to find some room, right? Phil covered so much. The workbook covered so much. I didn't want to just repeat what they said, so I'm going to go into something a little bit different. And hopefully this is helpful for you as you're seeking to understand uh, two two large debates that both arise out of the Abrahamic covenant. So really quick, let's give an overview of this covenant just to get get our bearings straight and get, get an understanding of the big picture of what's going on here. Like I said, there are three specific promises that God brings up to Abraham, and we see these promises laid out for us in Genesis 12. That's the first place these, these promises come up. We see three promises. The first is a promise of a land. So Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So get this. Adam and Eve... They are in the garden. We just sang a song about the garden. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have complete, perfect fellowship with God there. And then they sin. And what happens to Adam and Eve? They're sent out of the garden. Well, here in the Abrahamic covenant, we see a reversal of what took place in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are are, are Uh, uh, pushed out of the garden. And now with Abraham, we have a a new promise introduced. They're getting a new land. Abraham is getting a new land. It's as though he's going back into the garden where God cast Adam and Eve out of. The next promise we see here is that God is going to give an offspring. Look at the very next verse, chapter 12, verse 2. And I will make... uh, uh, of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So here he's saying, I will make you a great nation. As we see throughout the pages of Genesis, what he he goes on to explain is that Abraham is going to have an offspring. He's going to have a child. He's going to have a son. Again, think about how this relates to the covenant God made with Adam. In Genesis 3, after the fall, what did God promise? God promised a serpent head crushing offspring. 
A son would be born to Adam and Eve, and this son would bring about a, an end to the serpent and his demise, his, his, his rule on earth. The third aspect of this covenant is that Adam, or Abraham would be a blessing. So we see this also in chapter 12, verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So notice what he's saying here. I will bless you so that you might bless others. Again, think of how this relates to the curse in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve bring a curse to all the world. And now God is telling Abraham, you will be a blessing to all nations. You will be a blessing to the world. So that's a summary of this covenant. This covenant shows up over and over again in these few chapters. You see it in chapter 12, and then it shows up again in chapter 15, and then it shows up again in chapter 17, and then it shows up again in chapters 21 and 22. It's as though it just keeps popping up. Now, one of the lessons that we can learn from Abraham is that of faith. Abraham was a man of faith, and in many ways he is the forefather of faith. Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. So Paul here in Romans is quoting the book of Genesis and showing that through Abraham's faith in God, he was accounted as righteous. And now that is a, a, a paradigm for the church. That's a paradigm for the people of God. Through their trust and through their faith in God, the people of God are made righteous just like Abraham. He's a forefather of the faith, and now we get to essentially imitate what he portrayed in Genesis 12 through 22. and, And through imitating his faith, we are made righteous. But I do want to point out, as we read through the life of Abraham... He was not a man of perfect faith. So, like I said, the, the covenant shows up over and over and over again throughout the life of Abraham. And for some of us, you might be thinking, why? None of the other covenants really work like that. Why does it just keep coming up over and over again? Well, I want to just set a paradigm for you. Genesis 12, covenant promises. Genesis 13, Abraham shows up in the land. There's a famine. And I would say there's a lack of faith. What does Abraham do when he shows up in the land and there's a famine? He goes straight to Egypt. He doesn't trust that God is going to provide for him in the land. And instead, he goes to Egypt. And that might not seem like that big of a deal. But what does Abraham do when he gets to Egypt? He tells Sarah, hey, Sarah, can you pretend to be my sister? You're a beautiful woman. And when we get there, the the men of Egypt, they're going to see you and they're going to kill me and they're going to take you. So why don't we just skip the whole thing of me getting killed and let's just pretend you're my sister. You can be raped. It's okay. And uh, we'll, we'll be fine. That's not, that's not a man of faith by any account. That is a man living his life in fear. He's living in his life in, in constant or in direct, um, the, basically he's living the direct opposite of fear. 
Okay, so you have chapter 12, then chapter 13. So God gives a promise. Abraham demonstrates his lack of faith. Chapter 15, the covenant is restated. And here is really where the covenant ceremony takes place. It's like in response to Abraham's lack of faith in chapter 15, the covenant ceremony takes place. Uh, it, I, I think Phil did a great job explaining this. It's also mentioned in the book. But here we have the animals split apart, laid apart uh, uh, in half. So there's blood everywhere, right? The animals are, are literally ripped in half. They're cut in half. They're basically the blood between these two animals is creating a pathway. And you have these two covenant members entering into covenant. You have God and Abraham entering into covenant and the, the idea here is this is not something new with the Bible. This is actually something that we see throughout, throughout the Middle East when people would make covenants. This is how they would do it. And they would walk through the, the, the dead carcasses. And the idea was if you do not hold up your end of the bargain, so to be it to you as it was to these animals. However, when we get to Abraham, God tells Abraham, go over there and sleep in the corner, essentially. Right? Abraham, a deep sleep falls on Abraham, and he's, he's asleep in the corner, and God walks through the carcasses by himself, essentially saying, no matter whether or not you keep your end of the bargain, I am walking through this, my life is on the line, and I am for you. I will keep these promises for you. That's the message of Genesis 15. What happens in Genesis 16? Genesis 16, you have another lack of faith on Abraham's part. In Genesis 16, we have this whole story about Sarah and Hagar. You have Abraham's wife named Sarah, and then you have Sarah's servant, Hagar. Sarah looks at Abraham and says, you know, I'm getting really old. We don't have this promised offspring yet. Why don't you sleep with my servant? And instead of Abraham uh, looking at his wife and saying, no, love, we need to trust that God is sovereign here. We need to trust that God is going to work out his plan here. Abraham acts just like Adam in the garden and says, oh, yeah, sure, I'll eat of that fruit. But here he's saying, yeah, sure, I'll I'll take your slave. So he sleeps with Hagar. He has a son. Again, God's promise, Abraham's lack of faith. Now we come to chapter 17. And what do we have here? God reinstates the covenant. But now he comes to Abraham and says, what were you thinking? Your heir is not going to be through Hagar. Your heir heir is going to come through your own wife. So the covenant is restated yet again in chapter 17. And then we come to Genesis chapter 18 and all the way through chapters 18 through 20. And when you read through this story, you have another demonstration of Abraham lacking faith. The son has not been born yet. The promised offspring has not been born yet. In chapter 20, you have Abraham journeying down into the the territory of the Negev. And when he gets there, Abraham, he tells his wife, hey, you know this whole thing about you being my sister? Let's do that again. And he does the same thing again for the second time. 
in this man's life. He's, he's going to these foreign kings and he's, he's in fear that they are going to take his wife or, or take his life for his wife. And he says, let's just pretend you're my sister. You're beautiful, which is odd because at this point she's, I mean, she is like an old lady, honestly. And yet she's still so beautiful that he fears for his life and he says, you're my sister, again. But then, in chapter 21, despite Abraham's lack of faith, the promised child is born. Chapter 21. Isaac is born. And then when we get to chapter 22, here we see God testing Abraham's faith. So, promise, lack of faith. Promise, lack of faith. Promise, lack of faith. Fulfillment. I'll give you the son that I've been promising you. And now, God looks at Abraham and he says, let's see whether or not you're actually faithful. Now, we don't have the the time to get into all the details of this story, but this is the story where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. There are many things we can say about this. Um, It could seem super barbaric that God would even ask Abraham to do this in the first place. And then it's even more barbaric that Abraham seems to like go through with it. This just seems odd. This doesn't seem right. However, here's here's the, the little bit I would say. This was actually normal for the religions of that culture. And Abraham's thinking, okay, God, apparently you're just like the other gods. You're just like the God of Molech. You're just like these other gods. You, you want me to sacrifice my son? Okay. It's actually a sign of faith. It is a little odd, but he, he's going to go up and he's going to sacrifice his son. And then God shows he's not like the gods of this land. He stops Abraham the moment before Abraham kills Isaac and he says, don't do it. And God provides a sacrifice. Substitution takes place. Not Isaac, but the ram, right? Substitution takes place in that moment. A sacrifice is offered, but it is not Isaac. So what can we learn from this story about Abraham? Really quick, and then we'll get into the controversies. But really quick, what we first see is that God is patient and God is full of steadfast love. I mean, this story, better than any other, I think, in the Bible, demonstrates, at least from the Old Testament, right? This story demonstrates God's steadfast love. He gives Abraham a promise, and even though Abraham fails and shows his lack of faith, God reinstates the promise. Abraham fails, shows his lack of faith, God reinstates the promise. Abraham fails, shows his lack of faith, and God fulfills the promise. God is steadfast. He is patient. He is full of, of what we're, we're, we, we've come to understand, chesed love. It's the, the term here for steadfast love, covenantal love, never-ending love. God is, is filled with love, even when his people fail to reciprocate. God still pours out his steadfast and abundant love and mercy on his people. And that for us is so helpful because if we're honest with ourselves, we are just like Abraham. We're so quick 
to doubt God, so quick to forsake our faith, so quick to fall into ruin, and yet he looks at us with grace in his eyes and steadfast love. Next, we see here that throughout the course of Abraham's life, God has an intention and a motive for Abraham. God is slowly but surely building Abraham's faith. Right? Abraham shows his lack of faith, and yet God is steadfast in his, in his patience with Abraham and his willingness to build Abraham's faith. It's as though God keeps testing him, and when Abraham fails, he shows grace. He's patient with him, and then he tests him again. And then God shows grace and shows his steadfast faithfulness. And then he tests him again and so on and so forth. It's just over and over and over. God is faithful to help us become more faithful. <laughs> right? He is faithful to work in our hearts and give us this, this ability to remain faithful to him. God puts Abraham, he puts us in difficult situations at times and he gives us the grace we need in order to remain faithful to him. I also want to point out throughout Abraham's life he is hesitant to believe God's promise that there is a coming offspring. This is another lesson that we can learn from this. We are quick to doubt God's promises just like Abraham. Abraham is hesitant to believe God. I think this is a side note but notice Sarah is barren here. Sarah is barren here. She is unable to produce an offspring. I think typically when we think of our inability to fulfill what God commands of us, we think of our moral inability. We think of the fact that God calls us to be moral and upright. He calls us to love others and to demonstrate patience. He calls us to moral, a moral standard in order to please him. And we often think of our inability to do that because of the fall. The fall makes us unable to obey God as we know we should. But here we see that the fall is more encompassing than just the moral inability to obey God's commands. The fall has caused us to be incapable of obeying God in even natural ways. Here's what I mean. God called Adam and Eve, he called Noah to be fruitful and to multiply produce offspring. And here you get to Abraham and you realize even that we cannot do unless he intervenes. Even the natural, the natural things of of producing children, we are incapable of being in control of unless God intervenes. God intervenes. He provides an offspring to Sarah. You see, we are not only limited in our moral capacities to fulfill God's law, even our natural capacities often are limited. Yet at the end of the story, what we see, God works in Sarah. She produces an offspring. God's promise comes true. And so we can learn that God is faithful to keep his promises. Okay, so that's just a general overview of the story of Abraham. Like I said, what we're going to do now is do something uh, a little bit different. This is going to be more of like classroom style. We're going to go through two, two different arguments, two different controversies that come up in the Abrahamic covenant. Two different controversies. So as we go through this, this section of the evening, 
uh, we are going to come to somewhat complicated arguments. And so what I want to encourage you to do is if you have something to write on, feel free, scratch down a, a, a question, and hopefully at the end, end of the night we'll have some time even to dialogue. And if you have questions about these controversies, feel free to ask, and we'll try to work through your questions together. So, like I said, we have two specific theological debates here. So before we jump into them, I want to talk about essential and unessential, non-essential doctrines. So you've probably heard this. Some doctrinal conversations are gospel issues, right? Some are essential issues. If you do not believe this, then you are not a Christian. We talk about the Trinity. We talk about justification. If you do not believe in the Trinity, you're not a Christian. These are like foundational doctrines, But what about all those other doctrines that are not necessarily foundational? How how do we weigh their importance? Because when we just put things in two categories, it kind of seems as though we have like important category and everything else not important, right? How does God's sovereignty and, and evangelism work? How does God's sovereignty and prayer work? And it's easy to just go, ah, non-essential, and equate that with not important. And I don't think that's the most helpful way to think about things. I think it's actually a little bit more helpful to think of three categories. I didn't come up with this. Al Mohler has come up with this. He's called it a theological triage. It's just a fancy word of saying there are three separate categories. The first, essential for faith, essential to be a Christian. You need to believe these things if you are going to be a Christian. You need to believe that that coming to Christ by faith alone is the way to salvation. You can't work your way to God. There are not multiple ways to God. It's only through Christ, through faith, that we can become a Christian. You need to believe these essential elements of the gospel. But uh, Moeller points out there's a second category. And it's the category doctrinal essentials for, again, complicated word, kind of church cooperation. Theological and doctrinal essentials for church cooperation. In other words, there are certain doctrines that a church needs to agree on in order for there to be health in that church. So, for example, if you have two pastors at a church who believe different, different uh, things on one specific issue and it's going to cause a major rift in the church, that would be a secondary issue, right? So let's just take baptism as an example. If you have one pastor on staff saying we should be baptizing babies and you have another pastor on staff saying, no way, we only baptize believers, that's going to cause a a pretty significant rift in the church, especially when you have a family coming up saying, we want our baby baptized. This pastor over here is saying, let's do it. This pastor over here is saying, no, it's not going to happen, right? That's just practically speaking. This is like a matter of wisdom. Those two pastors probably shouldn't be serving at the same church because it's going to cause division. It's going to cause a rift in the church. They should be able to recognize their differences and just say, hey, we can agree on the gospel. We are brothers in Christ, but we're not going to, to pastor a church together. So these are secondary issues. The third uh, category is more so the trivialities 
So last week, we talked about the Nephilim in chapter 6 of Genesis. This story about the sons of men and the sons of God. And you're like, what in the world is going on here? I took it as being angels. The book took it as something else. Like, what is happening here? In essence, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) This is a tertiary issue. This is a third level issue. If we disagree on this, it's okay. It's not going to change the way we understand uh, the church. It's not going to change the way we understand Christ. And so here in our passage, I brought up there are two separate issues at stake here in, in the Abrahamic covenant. One of them, I think our church, well, I don't think, our church would categorize as a secondary issue meaning we need to agree on this as a church in order to function properly. The second issue that we're going to talk about is a tertiary issue. And yet, the second issue is, it's kind of higher on that, ter- sec- that, that third level. Some people would even put it in the second level. In fact, there are church- some churches will, would split over what I'll call a tertiary issue. Our church has decided to call this a tertiary issue. We've decided we can agree to disagree on this. We aren't going to start a church split over it. So, with all of that said, let me just lay out, here are, the two, here are the two doctrinal issues that come up in the Abrahamic Covenant. The first is the idea of baptism. And you don't see baptism here. All you see is circumcision in chapter 17. But circumcision, how does it relate to baptism? That has actually turned into a major, a major controversy throughout the history of the church. How does baptism and circumcision relate? Churches have split over this. Denominations have have split over this. This is actually, in church history, uh, a major controversy. Today, we probably don't think much about it. We probably aren't really all that concerned about how circumcision relates to baptism. We think it's probably even weird that we're talking about circumcision in the church, right? In a public setting, why are we even talking about that? However, in church history, this has been a major issue. The second issue that we're going to talk about, and this I would say is a tertiary matter, is a, is a matter of end times. It's the matter of end times. It's, it's the doctrines, uh, you could say the, the theological systems, big words, don't worry about it, you can write these down if you want, dispensationalism, covenantalism. These two doctrines come from the Abrahamic covenant. So those are the two debates, baptism, dispensationalism, or you could say uh, the Presbys and the Dispies. Presbyterians, they believe one thing about baptism that we wouldn't agree on. And then there's the Dispies, the dispensationalists, who believe one thing about the end times. Some people at our church agree with them, some people don't. Okay? So let's talk first about baptism and how it relates to circumcision. I want to start here because this is actually, I think, more important for the life of the church. And I also think this one's a little bit easier to follow. The logic here is a little bit easier to follow. It's not quite as complicated. Um, Like I said, I think this is a secondary matter. If two pastors disagree on baptism, that can cause a major rift in the life of the church because baptism is a regular thing that happens on a regular basis. And if you have people who believe different things on it, then you can start to cause rifts or divisions in the life of the church. So, why is there such a big rift on this whole idea of baptism? Well, it all starts when we go back to church history. Go back to 4th, 5th century. 
fourth, fifth century in the church, this whole entire concept of what they call baptismal regeneration came about. Baptismal regeneration is the doctrine that baptism is the means by which you are saved. Like at baptism, that's when you are saved. And so this idea started coming up in the life of the church. People are asking, well, what if my child dies before he or she is baptized? And so that was one of multiple reasons, but that was a primary reason why people started asking this question. And especially in the dark ages, as you had these massive plagues going throughout Europe and going throughout the continents, you had families saying, what about my child who died? And the this practice became more and more uh, regular. Churches began to baptize infants because they, they presumed that it was actually a saving act. Well, remember we talked about the five solas last year? If you were here, you remember that? The five solas, it was the, this is the, the, the Reformation. This took place in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. Well, in the 16th century, you had a man named Heydrich Zwingli. He was from Switzerland. He was a reformer. He, we agree with Zwingli on many, many things. And Zwingli looked at this and he said, you know what, this whole idea of infants being saved through baptism, this is unbiblical. However, children should still be baptized. This was the conclusion that Zwingli came to. And he started this, this entire concept of, of drawing a line between baptism and circumcision. He said, when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, the children of faithful Israelites were circumcised. Well, in the same way, in the church, the the children of faithful Christian parents should be baptized. It's a one-to-one correlation. Why aren't we doing it? Like, we should keep doing this. It doesn't save them, but we should still keep doing this. I think in ways, probably what is going through his head is this is so ingrained. Baptizing children was so ingrained. And if you just say, we're not doing it, it's going to cause a lot of heartache. It's going to cause a lot of unrest. A lot of parents are going to be very angry about this and your church is going to shrink to nothing. So this is me just assuming the worst is Zwingli. Maybe he just looked at it and just compromised and said, well, okay, it doesn't do that. We're still going to do it, but it, it doesn't actually save your child. So he keeps doing it. Well, this argument has carried weight throughout the rest of church history. So if you, the Presbys, right? The Presbyterians. Pres, Presbyterians, they baptize infants and they follow the vein of Zwingli. So you have Zwingli teaches this. John Calvin, the next uh, generation, teaches the same thing. And in many ways, John Calvin serves as, as the, the figurehead for Presbyterianism. And so Presbyterians practice infant baptism. And one text where they would go, uh, where Presbyterians will often go, actually, to, to teach this is Colossians. So go to Colossians 2. So Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. Here we see baptism and, and circumcision come up in the very same verse. And so the idea here, according to many Presbyterians, is that these two things are in correlation Baptism and circumcision. So Colossians 2, verse 11. In him also, 
you were circumcised. So in other words, in Christ, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were once raised, or in which, in, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So notice here, side by side, circumcision, baptism. Many Presbyterians will say, clearly, this is in correlation. We should still be baptizing our children because for thousands and thousands of years, the Jews circumcised their children. So baptism replaces circumcision. And we should keep practicing it in the same way that the Jews practiced it. So I think, in a way, um, this is similar to, just follow the illustration here for a moment. Think of like you have a child, like a, a baby, and you give that baby a letterman's jacket. You give that baby like a, a, a letterman's jacket for the varsity football team. And let's just imagine everybody does this. You have a whole city. There's one high school, and all these kids in this city will all go to this one high school. And all of these parents say, you know what, we're all going to do this. If you want to be a part of this city, we're going to give our babies letterman jackets. Varsity football team letterman jackets. Now, these children grow up, and for some of them, the jacket actually proves to be fitting. They play on the varsity football team. That jacket means something. It says something about who they actually are. But for others, they're walking around with the Letterman jacket, but they don't even play football. They would rather play in the band or something. And you're like, why are you wearing the varsity football team Letterman jacket? That doesn't make any sense. That's, in a way, how circumcision functioned. You are making a declaration about a child who has not possessed any faith towards God yet and saying, here's the mark that you are a child of God. Well, then they grow up. Some of them have faith. The mark is fitting. Some of them don't have faith, and the mark is not fitting. It doesn't say anything about who they actually are. Well, when we get to the church, and people are doing the same exact thing, they're giving the the baby the letterman's jacket before they've actually grown up and even decided to play on the football team, it doesn't make sense. When we look at this passage, actually, when you go to Colossians 2, I just want to say, here at, at Golden Hills, we, we don't agree with Zwingli. We don't agree with Calvin on this. We don't agree with the Presbyterians on this. Colossians 2, it, I think it actually proves the exact opposite of what the Presbyterians are saying. Notice what he says here. In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Paul here isn't even talking about physical circumcision. Notice what he's talking about. He says, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul here is saying baptism correlates with the circumcision of Christ. Again, this causes us to do some biblical theology. When we read through the pages of the Old Testament, there's this constant promise. A Messiah is coming and he is going to give us circumcised hearts. When you read in Deuteronomy, when you read in Jeremiah 31, when you read in Ezekiel 36 and 37, that's the promise. 
the Messiah will come and he will circumcise your hearts. In other words, he will enable you to believe the gospel. He will change your heart from within. And then, and only then, will you become a child of God. In other words, your heart is circumcised when you have faith in Jesus. That is what Paul is equating with baptism. And so in reality, baptism ought to happen when you have faith in Jesus. Because when you have faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes within you, the Spirit circumcises your heart in that moment so that you can have faith in God. So that's how we here at Golden Hills would understand this. Um, We would not follow the way of Presbyterians on this specific account. I think that baptism ought to be tied to the spiritual circumcision. In other words, baptism is tied to a person's faith profession of faith. Okay, so that's the first controversy. Now we're going to go go into the second controversy. This one is a bit more technical. That said, have hope this one's less important. So this one is a little more technical, primarily because of the names that these two texts or these two uh, schools have. So there's this one school, this one camp called Dispensational Theology big word, right? We'll define what it means in a moment. Big word, right? But you have this camp, camp, the Dispies, the Dispensationals. Then you have this other camp, Covenant Theology. Covenant Theology, Dispensationalism, two different camps. And the Abrahamic Covenant is really the root of where these two camps begin to splinter, begin to go in different directions. Again, like I said, this is a tertiary matter. This is a a third tier thing. We shouldn't split a church over this. However, for some people, this turns into a pretty heated argument. This turns into a pretty important thing for some people. And we we just need to recognize that. And that's why I'm bringing it up is because so many people uh, get fired up over these things. So let's talk about definitions. What is dispensational theology anyways? Let me just boil it down. Dispensational theology is the idea that the promises that God has granted throughout the pages of the Old Testament are meant specifically for the physical descendants of Abraham and the nation of Israel. So the promises that we read about throughout the pages of the Old Testament are specifically geared towards the the, the physical descendants of Abraham. In other words, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, those who are descendants of the Israelite nation. This means that the promises are not fully fulfilled in the church. Some dispensationalists would would say the promises are not fulfilled ultimately in Jesus' work on the cross. The promises that we read about throughout the pages of the Old Testament will one day be fulfilled when the, the physical Israelites, the actual descendants of Abraham, come back to the Lord. When they turn from their sin, the spiritual blindness leaves them and they come back to, to the Lord, to Yahweh. So, this is where a lot of the end times debates come about. So, actually, can we bring up, I actually have a little slide 
You want to bring that up? Yes. So um, this is kind of confusing, right? But the, the, one of the jokes about dispensationalism is they're all about charts. This was the, the by far the most simple chart I could find on dispensationalism, um, by far. So what you see here to, the, to your left, you have Israel and the Old Testament. And then you have Christ come. And notice this. It says the church age. So let me just pause there for a second. So think through this. Just Let me get your attention just for a moment. You have the, the Israelite age. Christ comes. Now we have the church age. So many dispensationalists will actually view the church as, as a parenthesis in God's plan. Israel is what the Bible is about. You have the church as a parenthesis. Many would say that the church is intended to foster jealousy within the Israelites and eventually that jealousy will bring them back to the Lord. Okay? Clear as mud? Alright, let's keep going. So, the next thing you see are uh, the, is the, on the top. Let's go above the line. You have the Great Tribulation, seven years. This is building off the book of Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel prophesies that there will be uh, I'm not going to get all into it, but essentially the interpretation here is that Daniel prophesies there will be a seven-year tribulation. Now, before that tribulation, you notice those arrows below it that say one, two, three, four? Most dispensationalists would fall under the one category. The one category, pre-tribulational. So, you want a really, really long-winded word. It's premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture. So, what this means is before this seven years, this is where we get all left behind, if you've ever heard of that book. Before those seven years, the church will be raptured. They will vanish. I know it sounds, maybe some of you are like, that sounds weird, right? But like, are my my clothes going to just be laying there when I go? Right, that's the question. Um, But essentially, what we have here is you have this seven-year tribulation that is begun the moment the church is raptured. Church is raptured, seven years start ticking. And you have seven years, and then you have the second coming of Christ. So the rapture is often drawn from 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, A trumpet will sound. The church will be caught up in a cloud with Christ. So that's the, the idea of rapture, the church lifted up from the earth, meets Christ in the clouds, and then vanishes for seven years with Christ in heaven while the great tribulation is going on. Now, the great tribulation, when you read the book of Revelation, you have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. If you're not familiar with Revelation, you're probably wondering, what the heck are you talking about, right? So uh, that's okay. So in the book of Revelation, there are, there are these judgments that are poured out on the earth. And it, when you read through it, you're like, man, it is going to get awful, right? There's seven seals, and then it gets worse with the seven trumpets, and then it gets even worse with the seven bulls. God is judging the earth. That's the, the idea in the book of Revelation. So the dispensational interpretation here is those seven years... That's when the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls of wrath are poured out on earth. Then you have Christ return. Now we have this thing called the millennium. Okay, I know it's like just the details here. You're like, oh my goodness. So now you have this millennium. This is from Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, it says that Christ will reign 
on the throne in Israel for a thousand years. There's all sorts of debate. What in the world, are, what is this even talking about? Because it just kind of comes out of nowhere and then it, it's like a few verses and then all of a sudden, millennium is over. <laughs> so, the, so the book of Revelation, it, there's this, it's like seven verses or something on this thousand year reign of Christ in Israel. And so uh, the dispensational argument is that the millennium is taking place there. Jesus is reigning physically on the earth for a thousand years. And after the millennium, comes the new heavens and the new earth. Why is any of this important? Because from the dispensational side of things, the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled in the millennium. So the idea here is when you read the Abrahamic covenant, there are promises that have not been actually fulfilled yet. That's the argument. You read the Abrahamic covenant and there's this promise of offspring in a land. Well, Israel was in a land, but then they got cast out of the land and then they came back and then they got cast out again. They never experienced peace in the land. So we aren't there yet, but when we get to the Davidic covenant, Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant are related. When we get to the Davidic covenant, we see this promise of land is is brought up again. And in the Davidic covenant, we see there's going to be peace, great peace in the land. So the, the dispensational argument is like, listen, that has not happened. The people of Israel have not been in the land with peace, everlasting peace. That's not happened yet. And God is not unfaithful to fulfill his promises. He's going to fulfill his promises. And he must be fulfilling his promises in Revelation 21 when we read about the millennium kingdom, when Christ comes to reign on the throne. That is the dispensational argument. Covenant theology is a little, I would just say it's less complicated in some ways. Here's a definition. God has worked continuously in history in one united effort. And that effort began in Genesis 1 through 3. And it finds its ultimate culmination in the person of Jesus. That would be a very um, simple may have not sounded very simple, but that would be a simple understanding of covenant theology. Continuous story, starting in Genesis 1 through 3, culmination in Jesus. That's, that's the, the basic idea of covenant theology. Here we see that the, the story of scripture, you can take that down now. Um, I'll bring the other one up in a second. The story of scripture is united, it's unified, the covenants that we read about in the pages of scripture build on one another. Uh, you don't have this whole thing of like, God is working with Israel and then there's this parentheses where he's working with the church and then he's back to Israel and then he's new heaven and new earth where it's, it's kind of segmented, right? That's, that's what a dispensation is. It's God is working specifically in history different ways at different times. Covenant theology puts more continuity in it. There's more continuation. The covenants are building on one another. They aren't necessarily segmented. So the promises that we read about through the pages of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. And then Jesus offers those promises to the people of Israel, yes, but also to the people, uh, the Gentiles who come into the church. 
So there's not this massive distinction between Israel and the church in covenant theology. That is the case in dispensationalists. There's a, there's a big distinction between Israel and the church. The covenantal reading of the Abrahamic covenant, therefore, is that the Abrahamic promises find their ultimate climax and fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. And Jesus brings us to a new and better promised land, namely the new heavens and the new earth. So, these two significant promises are fulfilled differently depending on which camp you are in. Covenant theology, more of a focus on how Christ and the church are fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Dispensational theology says, no, Christ on the de- in his death and resurrection at his first coming, the church, they are not fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant in the way that Israel will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant in the uh, new heavens or in the, the millennial kingdom. Okay. Hey, you guys could take that down actually. I don't know if you got that. It's probably just distracting now because you're reading about all these crazy words. Okay. Um, so let me actually transition. I want to talk about some critiques. So covenant theologians will critique dispensationalism. Dispensationalists will critique covenant theologians. And I think it's important for us to to actually think about these critiques. First off, let me just point out that many covenant theologians will critique dispensationalists because they think, you know, you dispensationalists are all about your system. You're all about your timeline. And you're just trying to fit the Bible into your timeline. You're just so obsessed with the rapture and the millennial kingdom that you're just trying to fit the Bible into your timeline and into your system. Um, I just would say that I don't think that's a fair critique. I actually was at a dispensationalist school. I was in a church that was dispensationalist. Dispensationalists love the Bible. They do. And to say you're all about systems, you're all about you know, fitting things into your timeline, it's just simply not true. I think ultimately they're reading the scriptures and they're trying to understand the Bible as best as possible and they're forming a system out of their reading of the scriptures. So I think we have to be fair. If you do not agree with dispensationalists, you have to offer more legitimate critiques than you're just trying to fit, you know, your Bible verses into your system. It's it's not quite that simple. Um, okay, let me transition now. Dispensationalists will accuse covenant theologians of not taking the Old Testament literally. This is probably the most typical critique that a dispensationalist will, will speak against a covenant theologian. That's really what dispensationalists... Is, that, that's one of the bedrock foundations of dispensational theology. You have to interpret the Old Testament literally and on its own terms. They'll say you cannot go to the New Testament to reinterpret the Old Testament. You need to read the Old Testament on its own terms and and seek to understand what it says on its own terms without jumping to the New Testament in order to interpret what it says. So you can't interpret the the Abrahamic covenant by going to the New New Testament and then reinterpreting the, the Abrahamic covenant. That's usually the critique, the most common critique that a dispensationalist will bring against covenant theology. So for me personally, 
I use, I tend to land more on the covenantal side. Um, thankfully, in the last probably 30 years, the, the two sides have started to move towards each other. Uh, they aren't necessarily so like pitted against each other like they were back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, they're starting to come closer to the middle. I'd probably fall more on the, the covenantal side, though. So what I want to do is I want to talk about whether or not we are reading the Old Testament literally. So as a covenant theologian, am I or am I not reading the Old Testament literally? Abraham has promised a literal offspring. He's also promised a land, a literal land, the land of Canaan. When you read through the story of Genesis with the Abrahamic covenant, he has promised the land of Canaan. And am I saying that promise is not going to be fulfilled? Am I not reading the Old Testament literally? So, the temptation is to go straight to the New Testament and say, well, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament for us. So, when it comes to the offspring, let's talk about this offspring promise. The New Testament, over and over again, says the church is the fulfillment of the offspring promise. Ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment, and then the church, by, um, uh, because we are co-heirs with Christ, we become partakers of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what the New Testament says over and over again. So Galatians 3 and 4, we've read that earlier. Ephesians 2, Romans 4, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. So over and over again, we see this in the New Testament. But what does the Old Testament say? So I want to just go to the Old Testament. And I want to show from the Old Testament that a literal reading says that the offspring of Abraham are not limited to the physical descendants of Abraham. Even in the Abrahamic covenant. So we saw this in Genesis 12, verse 3. When God makes the promise to Abraham, look what he says. He says, in you, this is verse 3, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then in chapter 17, verse 4, God promises Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. One individual producing a multitude of nations doesn't make much sense. In fact, when we read what Paul says, Paul is looking back and he's saying, that promise right there proves, he's reading this literally too. I think Paul is reading this verse here literally and saying, the nations become children of Abraham through faith. That is the argument of Romans 4. Through faith, even the Gentile nations become children of Abraham. But this isn't it. There are other passages throughout the Old Testament which say this very same thing. Um, I know some of you have this book. If you have John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad, there's an entire chapter on this about through, it, it, on the Old Testament, passages throughout the Old Testament which show God's heart for the nations and God's heart and intention to bring people to himself from not only the people of Israel but from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I don't have time to go through all of them. There's like five pages of verses, just one after another after another. Let me just read Isaiah 56. I think this is really helpful for us to see. 
Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 7. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Notice what verse 3 says. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. This is Isaiah saying, the foreigner will not be separated from God's people. Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. The foreigner will be better than the sons and daughters. In other words, the Gentile will be better than the Israelite son and daughter of Abraham when he has faith. Essentially is what they're saying. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. We can just keep going. This whole chapter just over and over and over again. So a literal reading of Isaiah, a literal reading of the Psalms, really. You read the Psalms, all the calls to the nations to join the people of the Lord, it comes up over and over and over again. A literal reading of the Old Testament leads us to believe the people of God are not limited to the Israelites, the physical descendants of Abraham. What about the land promise? Is the land promise of the Old Testament limited to the land of Canaan? When we read Genesis 15, verses 18 to 21. I know we're getting long, so bear with me. Genesis 15, 18 to 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Now notice, he draws a perimeter around the land. From the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, so on and so forth. So he gives them this land, and he draws a parameter. He says, from this river up to this river. And as we go into the book of uh, of Joshua, and we read about Israel receiving this promised land, the land goes from the river in the south, the, the river of Egypt, to the river in the north, the river of the Euphrates, from the sea of the Mediterranean to the sea, the Dead Sea. So there's this parameter. We see that over and over again throughout uh, the book of Deuteronomy, throughout the book of Joshua. And then something odd happens. Psalm 72. This is Solomon reflecting on the Davidic covenant. So Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, both draw parameters. Sea to the sea, river to the river. Euphrates to the river of Egypt, Mediterranean to the Dead Sea. Psalm 72, here's what we see, verse 8. This is the king. May the king have dominion from sea to sea, Mediterranean to the Dead Sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Notice that. 
another passage, Zechariah 9. You don't have to turn there. Zechariah 9, verse 10. Here's a promise of the new covenant. So this isn't talking about the Davidic covenant. Now we're talking about the new covenant. 9, verse 10 of the book of Zechariah. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. The Messiah's rule, it says, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So notice what we see in the Old Testament, a literal reading of the Old Testament. First, the borders are are this little square. You get to Joshua, still a little square. And then you start reading about David and Solomon. David, the walls start to, the borders start to expand. Solomon, the the borders get even bigger. And then Solomon writes this this poem about the land. And he says, you know what? The borders are from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah says the same thing. When the the messianic king comes, his the land will be expanded from the river, or from the sea to the sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, the promised land is no longer limited to this little plot of real estate in Canaan. Now, the promised land is expanding to the ends of the earth. That's a literal reading of the Old Testament. So here's how I would summarize what's going on here. In all of these different uh, controversies, whether we're talking about baptism or whether we're talking about the land promise or whether we're talking about the offspring promise. In all of these promises, the, 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 the promise starts small and as we read through scripture, the fulfillment just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So you start off, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Keep going throughout scripture your son, your children will be the multitude of all nations. The land. It's going to be this little plot of real estate in the land of Canaan. And it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you get to Revelation 22. It's a new heavens and a new earth. So, when we read scripture, I I don't necessarily think the best way to read scripture is to segment it so much. I think we need to look at the overall plot line of what's going on here. The dispensational idea is you have you have God working with Israel and then things get bigger and bigger and bigger in the church and then it's like we're going back to Israel. Get augmented, augmented, augmented and then all of a sudden getting small. Same thing with the land. Getting big, getting big, millennial kingdom and then new heavens and new earth. I just think it's more of a continuous transition from small to large. And I think this is actually hopeful for us as we think about the promises of God. God's promises are always fulfilled in a way that's better than we ever anticipated. The land promises, the fulfillment is better than we would have ever anticipated. Same with, with for us, as we're anticipating the fulfillment of all of God's promises, we can come to those promises expecting these are going to be fulfilled in better ways than we could ever have imagined. So, with that, would it help if we did a little bit of Q&A now? Does anyone have any questions on this? And if not... We could, if you don't want to do it out loud right now, feel free to come up afterwards and we could talk. Going once, going twice.
Okay. Let's just wait until after. If you have questions, feel free to come and talk. Um, I know this is like a controversy. Both of these things, these are controversial. For some of you, maybe you're more familiar with this. Maybe for some of you, this was new to you, and you don't know what questions to ask. That's fine. But um, with that, let me just pray, and then um, we'll close our night with some singing. God, we are 